0: This has been a really exciting week for everything that I find interesting. So hopefully that means it will be a very interesting week for you because we're into the same stuff, right? That's, that's why you're here, I hope. So let's find out how much our interests overlap. First, I am in New York out of nowhere. This was a total surprise. I ended up coming here for a little workshop that Apple put together. Um It was just no announcements or anything like nothing really coming from Apple. It was more that they were connecting me and a few other content creators with developers and professional photographers and video shooters that have some tips for how to make amazing content on your phone. So I'm going to share the, the coolest stuff out of that that I learned I have some great app recommendations. And then after that, we're gonna be talking to the Brotographer, who's been doing some great tests on his YouTube account of the a7R III. This has huge implications for anybody thinking about picking this camera up, especially if you're moving from Canon, which I am. So I guess most of all, it has <laughs> big implications for me, but we're just gonna talk about this camera in general. Cause honestly, the Sony a7R III is looking like it will be the camera of 2018. So stay tuned. starting to like that song. You know how you get attached to something even if you didn't expect it to after you just get exposed to it enough times? I remember reading about this study where people would be exposed to paintings, like kind of secretly. I think it was that they'd kind of plant them in magazines in the waiting room or something like that. So the test subjects would just have been aware of a painting without knowing it. Then a few days later, whatever, hours later, I don't remember, they end up in a study room where they're being asked, how much would you bid on these paintings? And they're going through a series of paintings. They're like $100 for that, $500 for that, $1,000 for that. And they always massively increase the price of the one that they recognize, even though they, of course, don't remember recognizing it. Nobody said that this artist is important. They just know about it. Anyway, I think about this all the time. Same thing with, like, movie trailers. You go see the movie that you saw a trailer for, even if it's not going to be any better or you didn't hear anything about it. This is not what I'm talking about today, so you can forget all of that, especially because that's probably wrong about half of it. What I want to talk about first is that I went to this really cool thing that Apple put on. I, I don't have any Apple information. It, all of this is coming from some great people that they brought together To share some cool tips and just kind of help people that are going to be shooting at fashion week do a better job of it. So Anya and I are planning to be at least at New York fashion week. I don't know if we'll, I don't know. We talked about London. We'll, we'll see if that happens, but we will at least be at New York. We're going to be shooting a YouTube video there and shooting a couple shows. So this stuff was both relevant for us and it's stuff that you can apply to your daily life. This isn't fashion only. It's just good storytelling. I'm going to start with some tips that I think are going to be helpful for the most number of people. Uh, I've been looking around for an app to help me kind of up my Instagram story game lately. I know that Apple has been doing their Clips app for a little while, which is fine. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff in it. I loved the, uh, you could do like green screen stuff for Star Wars. So all of a sudden you're in the Millennium Falcon and it looks pretty good. I love that in Clips, you can do dictation where it puts the text over what you're saying and you can quickly adjust it. So this would be perfect for doing Facebook videos because in Facebook, nobody unmutes the volume. However, Clips doesn't allow you to shoot different uh, orientations of the video. You can't shoot horizontal or vertical, which is, is really weird to me. It's only square. I don't know why. It's It's kind of weird. But the thing that I love about Clips and that I've been looking for is... I want the experience of just pressing a button to start my story, then stop, and then start it, and use that to edit on the fly so that within a few moments or minutes, I can be done a 15-second component of the story that is tightly edited together. Because even though stories are short, there's 15 seconds per clip. That's not that short. I mean, you can get bored in 15 seconds pretty easily. Think about a movie or YouTube. Not many shots are more than three, five, maybe 10 seconds. 15 seconds is an extremely long shot, and people can definitely start to lose attention by the end of it. So if you're just picking up your phone, recording something happening for 15 seconds, you got to know that people are skipping that a lot. Um, You you don't get those statistics, like all, all you know is that people landed on the video but there's a pretty good chance they jumped right by it. So if you instead can skip for them and just keep the momentum moving forward, keep them engaged, people will stick around with your stories more. At least I would. <laughs> I've I've found that for other people's stories that I've been watching. I watched uh, Peter McKinnon's video about this recently. He uh, actually I, I don't remember when he made it, but he was talking about different strategies for better storytelling. And uh, the guest that he had on was really interesting. His name was Jesse Driftwood, who you should check him out on Instagram. And he's doing crazy stories, like really very well edited, as well as a good vlogger. And it's still, you know, less than a minute long for the whole day. Like it's, it's a vlog. It's a vlog being shot in vertical orientation and just being turned around in 24 hours. It's amazing. He's doing a great job. But there's some challenges with this, and it also kind of goes against my personal philosophy for stories. Most importantly, maybe, it doesn't scale. He is a professional vid- videographer, cinematographer. We still don't have a good word for what high-quality video shooters are, but he's a, he's a pro, and he can make stuff that is better than what I do sometimes. It's as good as Casey Neistat. It's amazing. Anyway, everybody isn't going to learn to edit like that. And most of all, everybody's not going to start spending that much time on their stories to shoot on a big camera, download all the footage, edit it, upload it. But I'd also argue for the amount of effort that he's putting in, if he's putting those out as vlogs on YouTube, he could reach a lot more people. And if he has a message to spread, it's going to last a lot longer if it doesn't disappear. So to me, the value of these quick stories that uh, come out, right away as they're happening or that they're like, they're telling a more raw kind of storytelling. They're more unfiltered. They are more directly connected to the moment. It's like live, but less boring. You know, I I do live streams sometimes and honestly I find it hard to stay interesting for that long, but you know, just on the spot being live, it's really challenging because you just kind of stand there rambling on and you can't cut out anything boring. And like even these podcasts, this, this isn't live. I edit this. I edit like most things that I do that go out there because I don't want to waste your time. You're you're going to spend so much time if you listen to this podcast. That's a big percentage of your day, you know. The people that I listen to their podcasts, they're consuming a lot of my time. And so I want them to have respect for that time because None of us have a lot of it, even in a disposable format like Instagram stories or, of course, Snapchat stories. I'm just not Snapchatting anymore. You still need to do something that is tight and timely and good. And now I'm rambling and wasting your time. So let's get on to how to do stories right or the way that that I think is right. So, like I say, good stories to me are almost live, like there isn't a huge delay and they represent what you're doing right now. If possible, sometimes you gotta post stuff later because no internet or whatever. There's there's reasons sometimes that I will post things at a later date, and I I think it it totally can make sense. But optimally, you are reporting on what's happening now, and if somebody sends you a message, you can be like, oh yeah, I'm still at that place because you just saw it. Like that that is what makes stories most compelling to me. And I know I'm sorry I keep saying stories. I I wish Snapchat wouldn't die, but it's slowly going away, and it doesn't deserve to because they innovated a lot but I'm on Instagram stories. And I've got to say that I am 100% certain that Instagram stories are only going to get bigger and bigger. Like Instagram is becoming an everything app. It's owned by Facebook and Facebook is doing what they did on Facebook, where it used to be one type of platform with a wall. And now it's, it's everything. It's photos and videos and links and articles. And, you know, they just kind of build it on top of it. This is Facebook's approach. And so it's what they're doing with Instagram. And you know what, there are mixed results about that. There's some things that are great, some things that are challenging, but it means that I've been able to reach a lot more people with stories than I ever was with Snapchat, because that was developing a whole nother follower base um, that, you know, wouldn't end up seeing a lot of the stuff that I did. So all that to say that this is going to be a huge part of Instagram's platform, and it is going to change how people interact with the feed as well. I mean, I already post a lot less to my feed because I have stories. So the more just kind of disposable stuff goes into stories like pictures of food. I don't know. I'm not really going to post that in my feed. I don't really post them in my stories usually either. But um, it's just... The feed becomes more of a portfolio and the stories become more of a a, a blog, just a quick storytelling method, which is what Instagram started out as. So in a way, it kind of also gets me back to the roots of Instagram. So the way that I can now create these stories, the tip that I got from this event in New York is an app I have been searching for without knowing it, and it is called Spark Camera. Um, This is not the same as Adobe's Spark, which um, Adobe was there too, and I was chatting with them as well. They were showing me Spark. Unrelated. It predates Adobe's Spark branding, I I, I believe. And basically, it is um, like Clips. It lets you just hit record, and then let go, and hit record again, and let go. And in doing that, you're instantly editing a story. Or a video. Of course, you can create a whole vlog like this. You can create high-quality content. It doesn't have to be disposable. But what got me excited is the way that in a few minutes, I can create a compelling, well-edited story for Instagram. It has some extra features that I really enjoyed, like the filters in it are, I think, a little bit better than what's built into Instagram. So you can easily just swipe back and forth to add those. And what the developer was telling me is that those are actually the first time that this swipe method was used to put filters on. It was actually invented in Spark Camera before Snapchat and Instagram made it ubiquitous. So that was interesting. And as a designer, I mean, I've I've done a lot of web design, I can appreciate that feeling of that you know that you in, invented a certain interface idea and and then it spread around but it's not it's not like anybody's going to give you credit for it. but so here's my time to give credit to them uh, 'cause they did it first they 've been around for a long time, and I think now they 've found their moment with with stories. so the other things you can do to give it a more professional look as well as tightening up the edit you're pressing record, letting go, and then after you 've recorded them, you can go back in, make tweaks and edits if you feel like it uh it doesn 't take that long, and you can just tighten everything up so that within fifteen seconds you can actually tell a complete story in fifteen seconds you don't even need you know uh a dozen little fifteen second clips. You can you can do it so much faster unless you're speaking a lot. But, you know, a lot of the time you're not. And you can also do basic production stuff like changing audio levels. So if it's just a bunch of noise in the background, you could turn it down or you can mute it and then you can add music, which I've been wanting to add music for a long time. I think that's a great feature. And what I really want them to do, and I I told him this and he said maybe someday, is to be able to record a longer segment and then export all of them into little Fifteen second clips, so then I could just upload like my whole story. I could edit my whole day's worth of story together, export it into a sequence of clips, and then upload all of those to Instagram. I, I would love to be able to do that in the future, but for now, still, this is this is how I'm going to start doing stories. It's it's really easy to do. Go download it right away. Spark Camera, so good. So Adobe was also there, and they were walking me through some of their mobile solutions, uh, especially Lightroom CC, which. I was really glad to get the tour because honestly, I just haven't had time to like play with it and explore it on my own because I know it's not really built for me. Not yet. Anyway, uh, at the moment, Lightroom Classic is where I need to be. Sorry, Lightroom Classic CC, <laughs> uh, not to be confused with Lightroom CC, uh, which, of course, it will be confused. I'm confused even talking about it. Lightroom CC is meant to be their mobile first option. It's where you sync all of your files up to the cloud. It offers some of the things that iCloud Storage does or Google Photos with much more powerful editing tools. Basically, all of the tools that Lightroom offers on the desktop, he was saying that it's actually the same processing engine that the desktop version of Lightroom uses. So not only are all the sliders the same, but when you slide them, it has the same effect even when you're uh, adjusting raw photos. So if you import your raw photos to your desktop and then you sync them up to Lightroom CC, the raw photos are actually stored in the cloud. When you're doing the edits, you're editing. uh, I think like the live edit is a, uh, what do they call it? Those compressed DNG files that Adobe made proprietarily, I assume, because you can adjust white balance and stuff and it still looks good. But anyway, you're, you're more or less adjusting the raw files and it looks amazing. I mean, it looks like it does on your big computer at home. So if you're an iPad user, and I don't end up working from an iPad a lot because I know that I have to have my laptop anyway. So I usually don't travel with both. So this this still probably isn't going to be a thing I'm going to start doing all the time. But what I love Lightroom CC for is that it has some of the most powerful adjustment tools that I've seen, uh, the, the best of it is HSL sliders. If you don't already use those, that is hue saturation luminance. So hue means that you can take any of the, think of like the, the rainbow colors, the spectrum, you can say, okay, reds. I want my reds to be a little more yellow and orange. I want my orange to be a bit more magenta. And by touching those two things, you're going to start hitting people's skin tones. And as you move those around, you can bring somebody from looking really unhealthy to healthy. Like, for example, if somebody is standing near grass, a lot of the time that'll reflect up a lot of green into their face. So then you would grab the orange and move it away from green. Little things like that are insanely helpful. Also, skies. Skies, a lot of cameras will give it a little more of a purple cast than, say, traditional film would or what most... Filters go to most filters push skies towards cyan, which is a little less realistic, but a little more beautiful. It's what we've all come to be used to as as like a beautiful sky look. This is something that I wish was in every app that I use to adjust photos, but. Lightroom CC does it best, so that's where I go to for it. I was already using Lightroom for that, but some things I didn't know it could do is actually the brushes and the gradient masks that are inside of Lightroom. So that's just the ability to, say, selectively make the sky darker, make certain part of the image brighter, adjust differences in white balance across the image. Like There's so many different reasons that you'll just want to affect one part of the image. You might already be using Snapseed for this, There are certain things about Snapseed that will still work a little better, especially because there is no auto mask in Lightroom CC yet. Auto mask on the desktop just means that it automatically selects the color that it sees you painting over and tries to only affect that color in an intelligent way, similar to what Snapseed is doing. So Lightroom is a little bit less precise in that way, but the sliders are Better, basically, like I think the Adobe rendering engine is nicer. It's 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 really really well developed and mature. It does a good job on all images. And then also the brush has a lot more parameters that you can change in Snapseed. I think you can only adjust what is it brightness, contrast, saturation, and structure. That's not enough. Uh, you can't do white balance, for example. You can't manipulate much about the colors or like highlights and shadows and all that. You can do a lot more with it in Lightroom. So it's a much more powerful in in every way other than precision it is much more powerful to do your masking in Lightroom CC. And the people that Lightroom CC is is right for I was saying it's not right for me and that's because of my volume of of shooting raw photos. It's really a limitation of the internet more than anything. Like I couldn't get all my photos uploaded before I need to be finished with them. An average shoot will fill 128 gigs of space and to upload that will take a day on a good internet connection, which I don't always have. It's just not even an option. I need to keep my files stored locally. That's what Lightroom Classic CC is for. It's not going anywhere. I'm going to be able to keep using that for years to come. And, and Adobe realizes that, you know, the internet needs to move forward before everybody can be mobile all the time. There are professionals that still need these traditional tools. But If you are somebody that is, that photography is more like a supplement of the storytelling that you're doing. So uh, let's just say you're a writer and you need to take, like you're a general blogger and you do more writing than photography. Perfect for that because you can manage a reasonable amount of photos as long as you're not shooting that much, but have extremely powerful editing tools and catalog sorting tools. And then you have access to it both on your computer and on your phone and on your iPad. It would also just be great for like casual users, like, you know, semi pro hobbyists that just kind of want to up their game a little bit. You want to shoot in raw, but you're not shooting really high volume because it works well with raw. It does an amazing job. You just can't upload raw fast enough. So it's not the app's fault. It's it's really the Internet's fault. Most of the Adobe apps are free ish to get started with, to start playing around with them. But uh, Lightroom CC doesn't become really powerful until you pay for it a bit. And uh, I, I believe that starts at nine ninety nine. I don't know if that's the very... I think it is. Go Google Lightroom CC and find out the cheapest that you can possibly get it for. One key feature that it was missing, and I'm sure it's coming in the future, but it doesn't have the ability that the desktop does of saving presets. Th- those are just like little metadata files, right? It's just a bunch of text that say... All of the sliders should be in exactly these positions. So that's what Mastin Labs is, which Mastin Labs makes Filmborn that I mentioned on YouTube recently. Or that's what Visco is. That's what most people selling their presets. That's that's all it really is: is a bunch of commands saying sliders go here. Now that isn't supported in, in Lightroom CC right now. But the trick that I figured out in this conversation is that what you could do as a bit of a workaround for now is just. Have the preset on images that are synced to the cloud, and then you can copy-paste those settings to other images. So I haven't done this yet, so I'm not going to like walk you through it all. I'll work on developing this concept, see if it's useful, but give it a try. Honestly, Lightroom CC is a really powerful tool. It's also the way that I like shooting RAW on my iPhone the most which I don't usually find the need to. Uh, And I'm going to talk about that for one second because a bunch of people mentioned it on YouTube. Shooting RAW on a phone isn't that important because the best processing is usually done by the manufacturer, especially with smartphones. Like With the Google Pixel 2, the reason it looks so good is because Google did all this extra work on processing the JPEG. And the reason iPhone photos look so good is because there's tons of intelligence in the background taking that tiny little sensor and making it look way better than you can imagine. I mean, you can see this in the non-HDR high dynamic range situations where the background is blowing out, but just barely, and you don't want to turn on HDR. If you just touch the overexposed area, you can see that it'll kind of snap to Uh, trying to bring it back without applying HDR. There are just sort of intelligent live processing things that these cameras are doing that I haven't even seen any documentation about. Like, I don't think anybody talks about how it's happening. I don't know how it's happening, but it does an awesome job. So if you're shooting with your iPhone, I don't think you need to shoot raw to get the best out of it. The main thing it'd be useful for is fixing photos like if you need to recover b- bad white balance but honestly i like using the in camera app i like that i can just launch it from the home screen just by pressing the camera button next i want to talk about video a bit and speaking of you know using the built-in camera again i still usually do i haven't used this next app a lot but i've been aware of it for a while it's called filmic pro And it's what all professional videographers that I've talked to about iPhone shooting, they all use it. Like, this is the app to get. It's relatively expensive for an iPhone app, but it's not expensive. Look, like, if you're buying professional applications, $20, $30, whatever this is, that's not actually expensive. That is a very good price for a tool for pros. So... Go ahead. Don't feel bad about buying it. It's very worth it if you care about your videos a lot. And it basically just gives you all the manual controls that you would expect out of a real camera. Like it really takes the uh, some of the, you know some of the super simple ease of use stuff that Apple offers you, and just gives you some of the extra tools that you need to do professional stuff. But it, it is still pretty straightforward to use. Like you you don't need to learn a lot to benefit from it some of the stuff right away is like you can set your audio levels just by sliding stuff back and forward. You can manually set your exposure. So even an example for that I was thinking about is we're looking at some 24 frames per second footage. And a a downside of shooting that on an iPhone is that your shutter speed is still too fast. So it it looks choppy. It, It doesn't look as good as it would on a big camera. And it's, you know, it's not Apple's fault. It's just that the aperture on a phone is fixed. So it's always at what is it at? 2.4 on the telephoto and I think 1.8 on the on the wide. But on phones, those things don't change. The aperture stays the same, and all you can change is the shutter speed and the ISO. So when you're outside in really bright lighting situations and the ISO is already as low as it can go, it needs to turn up the shutter speed to expose it correctly. So what you should be doing for 24 frames per second is shooting at about one fiftieth of a second. If you can't do that, it's going to start going up to—it's probably shooting at like a 1 1,000th, 1 4,000th 1 of a second, and you get that stuttery motion that is is not ideal. Again, this is not a, a defect in the camera. This is just how cameras work. So the way you would control that is to put a neutral density filter in front of the lens that just reduces the amount of light coming in. If you're using Filmic Pro, you might add an external lens. Like this is the app that people are using when they have a rigged out iPhone, if you know what I mean. Like there's a cage around it and an extra lens attached and a mic on top and a light on the side. When people are using all that stuff, often Filmic Pro is the app running on the phone because then you can control all that stuff you would put an ND filter over that, sorry, ND is neutral density, over that external lens. Or you, you could even just like cut a little piece of it out because it comes in gels like pieces of plastic. You just cut out and stick it on the lens and you'd get the same effect. And you would do that until the shutter speed reduced to a 50th of a second. This is like advanced filmmaking for an iPhone. I don't think many people are are doing this, but I, I know there are reasons to do it. I've I've thought about doing it myself, really kicking up flogging a notch with a really compact system that you can post from directly. So there's reasons to do it, it's not super common, but you can do it the best with Filmic Pro. Also it lets you shoot log, which is the super flat profile and then you can add the color back in later and get a little bit more dynamic range. I think you can also get a little cleaner noise out of low light situations because you just have more control over the final grade. Um, But yeah, definitely worth looking at. Oh, and there's an extra app, like a a side app that is developed by filmic pro as well. And it's just a remote app so that you can log into another iPhone. Like you got two iPhones or better yet, you have one iPhone and an iPad. The iPad starts becoming a monitor and a control device for the iPhone. If you're recording yourself and you want to see what's going on and control everything, you can do it with the two devices. Awesome professional tools. I want to dig deeper into it in the future. And of course, they will just be digging more into how to create content from your phone. Like, phones are awesome. <laughs> you can do so much. It's, it's really exciting to me when I find out about new ways that you can do something unbelievable on this little device you already own that's in your pocket and can do more than all of the gear I had access to in college. It's, it still blows my mind. Okay, speaking of gear, let's talk about my possibly new favorite camera. I went to BNH today, which I, I try to do as often as I can because B&H just has everything in stock. And it can be challenging when the only time you get to see certain gear is online. Like there's a lot of sort of random specialty items that not a lot of camera stores carry, especially think about lots of studio gear, like obscure light stand mounts or crazy boom arms or huge varieties of lighting from every brand. It's just it's hard to find even in you know the camera store, which I love those guys, but they can't carry as much as B&H. So I went to B&H and I looked at an A7R three amongst many other things and i like it a lot it's it feels a little bigger than i expected cuz i had had one hands on before it starts getting closer to a dslr but that's fine um it's for all the right reasons it is a higher performing camera it's more of a real professional tool and it shoots crazy fast i didn't realize how I I was just kind of ignoring that spec because it's not important to me. But when I turned the drive mode up to high plus, it's 10 frames a second and it's just bang, 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 bang. It goes so fast. It was it was crazy. So I was impressed holding it in person. But I have some questions about this camera that were starting to get answered by some YouTube videos that I came across online.
1: Hi, Ross. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: So I've got Ross Thomas here, who I just came across your YouTube videos organically because it's exactly what I was searching for. And I feel like the whole world is searching for Mm -hmm. is different ways that the A7R3 performs because we all want these features, but we don't want the setbacks of a Sony. So if you guys haven't already seen his work, you can follow him on YouTube. He's the Brotographer. Uh, and the thebrotographer.com is your your blog that you've been doing for a little while now, right? Also, your Instagram is a home to a lot of awesome like photography and video creation.
1: Yeah. So the thebrotographer.com was started a couple of years ago as a place for me just to generally blog about the gear I had. At the time, I was 100% Canon and relatively new to the photography world. I had uh, owned my own t-shirt company at the time, and I uh, really wanted to get into product photography and uh, branding as a whole, so I picked up the camera and kind of went that route with it. And uh, just, just thought thebrotographer.com could be a fun place to uh, write reviews of the gear I had. and build up a little social media presence and uh, see where it went. Uh, so also, I also started the Instagram page at the time and really figured out that people enjoy talking about gear oh, yeah. just as much as I do, if not more <laughs> than the uh, actual photos themselves.
0: Yeah, it's, so. it's funny how that is, isn't it? Um, and I, I think you actually are a good representative of uh, sort of like a normal content creator story, like more so than me. I mean, I talk about so much about gear and stuff, but you come from a background of like working on your own product. So this is what I think most people searching for, like content creation tips are doing it from the perspective of that. They have a product or service that they want to promote. They want to get the word out there about it. So how do you use social media to do that? And that's, that's kind of how you got into this. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I are a uh, fitness studio owners of a a medium-sized, about 200-member fitness studio, and so I am 100% on board for the uh, branding content creation of that company, and uh, that's really where my background lies, and I don't claim to be an expert on it, but I, I find it fascinating how to use gear, media, social media, and the internet as a whole to uh, further the business that you're in.
0: Well, let's get to the gear, especially, because... Absolutely. It's this question that I'm surprised wasn't at the forefront of Sony's PR reach-out about this.
1: I'm very surprised by that as well. Yeah,
0: it's how does adapted glass work on this camera? And I think this even was something going back to the earlier generations of the A7R 2 and even one, that Sony didn't really talk about it that much. All of the attention that you can adapt other lenses and get pretty full functionality out of them. That was kind of an organic thing. I mean, Metabones is a company built on that, right? Had, had anybody heard of Metabones before the A7 series of Sony's? Like, it feels like they entirely exist to adapt <laughs> these Sony cameras. And now we're all doing it because we are at this stage where all of a sudden Canon became the default glass for Kind of mainstream shooters, you know, non high-end commercial shooters. Mm-hmm. We all bought EF lenses, but then Canon fell behind in in their camera technology. So, w- what were you shooting before you came from Canon?
1: I came from Canon. Uh, I was a classic T three I user uh, with with my first camera. So, started in the Rebel series, and then immediately bumped up to the five D Mark III. Wanted a second body at the time, and was doing doing some branding work, and I thought that fifty megapixel. 5ds would be my jam and uh turns out there were some really great things about that camera but after doing a ton of research i uh, wanted to take the dive into sony so that's when i made the split not 100 percent started living 50 50 in the uh, sony mirrorless e-mount world bought a uh, an a6300 and absolutely loved it so i also purchased a used a7r2 and uh Ever since then, I've been living uh, half and half. Sold my 5DS, sold the 5D Mark III. So now I work with a Canon 1DX Mark II and the good old Sony a7R Three.
0: Yeah, and that's very similar to the boat that I'm in with the uh, 5D Mark IV Is my Canon. And still my primary stills camera. Mm-hmm. I can't trust the a7R Two for stills. It is way too slow. Battery life doesn't exist. It crashes more often. It, it just has so many problems like it's funny because sony is amazing at packing the specs into this but uh, some commentary i've heard from some uh higher end news shooters is that maybe sony is almost pricing some of this stuff a little too low right they're making professional feature sets without necessarily all of the pro performance or like the durability the robustness that professionals come to expect in really high-end gear and that's specifically like thinking about the FS7 as well i think it's kind of in a similar boat produces insanely good images but isn't quite as robust as say the the 20 30000 dollar cameras that it was replacing
1: sure and that's that's definitely the boat that i'm in as well with that A7R2 i wrote an article a while back on why i sold the 5DS and switched to the A7R2 and uh, at the time the 5DS was extremely slow to use, and I was willing to set aside the uh, the build quality of that camera, the robustness of it all, to get to a camera which probably wasn't a lot. Quicker in its functionality, but the fact that it was using that EVF meant I never had to check exposure. I actually shot a lot quicker with that A7R2, but when I really, really wanted responsiveness, I had to go back to the Canon. If I went out to a mud run and shot my wife and it was raining or if it was dusty, I could really rely on the robustness of that camera and get that uh, the autofocus performance. And it's just such a quick camera to use. So uh, so that's, yeah, it's definitely in the same boat.
0: You know, it's funny, I stick by the fact that the Canon is more robust, but I actually, my 5D Mark IV has started to break in a way that my Sony hasn't. Oh, really? Yeah, the front finger dial, like uh, your um, pointer finger, mm-hmm. is, I wouldn't call it non-responsive. It's that sometimes when you go right, it'll do left. It just is confused about left and right.
1: Um, ah, interesting! It's, the, it's a huge the problem. classic MacBook Pro debate: whether or not you <laughs> swipe up or down to scroll. Right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except it's doing both at the same time. So, uh-huh, uh, you know, awesome. I, I have the Canon Professional Services, and they've they've always been great. The repairs are are awesome. Uh, this isn't a common problem. When I search for it, I, I think I just it happened to me. Right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I can widely blame Canon for it, but in my situation, my A seven R two is currently outlasting my five D Mark IV, So.
1: That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah.
0: But now, A7R3, I mean, let's talk for two seconds about why this is so exciting. On my YouTube, I, I covered it pretty extensively. I think when I reviewed the, I did a direct comparison of the A7R2 and the 5D Mark IV. Mm-hmm. And I had this long list of like, these are all the reasons the A7R2 falls down. And a lot of the comments on that seemed confused to me. I mean, people took away. Uh, the opposite of what I was saying in a lot of cases, they're like, yeah, you listed all these Sony features. Why are you saying the Canon's better? That just, you know, proves you're a Canon fanboy. (laughs) And it is kind of harder to explain. Like, look, the list of features is not what the camera is. A camera is not a set of numbers. It's design and performance and like it has to follow through in the physical world. And Canon's physical reality of its camera follows through in ways that the sony doesn't absolutely and a lot of those differences are subtle like having a proper what do you call it focus joystick joystick on the back
1: Mm
0: -hmm. having a battery that actually lasts having responsive controls and having quick response after you take the images these things like really 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 matter especially on a job have you found that to be different so far?
1: Right out of the box, uh, that was number one, two, and three for me with the A seven R three. You you really noticed the difference in the body, and you mentioned that you had uh, many frustrations with the A seven R two in that regard. Without that joystick in the back, the buttons almost seemed flush with the back of the camera, mm-hmm. and like you you mentioned, didn't have that robustness. But right off the bat, the buttons were much better. The wheel on the back is much better to click. It's harder, kind of like those uh, the Canon scroll wheel on the back of all their ca- their cameras. It's not tough to move, but you definitely feel it click, and that was something that I uh, I really enjoyed. I really enjoy the joystick as well. I still enjoy the Canon joystick just a little bit better than the A seven R three.
0: Most of all, it's just that there is one at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was a huge problem. Like, if I because I, I shoot with my wife kind of often, she uses Canon all the time. And if I ever handed her the Sony, she'd just be like, how do I change the focus point? Sure. We always are shooting with a selected focus point. I never do just full or not never. I rarely do full wide focus points where the camera can just select it on its own because it mm-hmm. can create all sorts of problems. I at least have zones. And on the A7R 2 it wasn't even preset in the camera to instantly be able to control that. I had to do a custom control so that I press the set button and then the dial would let me switch. Like it was crazy how challenging it was to move the focus point around.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One one pro that I did like over well, and do like with the A seven R three over the five uh, D Mark four and the one D X Mark II is that when you hold down that joystick on the back of the camera, the focus point moves continuously. If you hold mm-hmm. it up, it'll move all the way up to the top of the frame, to the left and to the right, and so on. With the Canon bodies, while I like the joystick a little bit better, I still have to click one at a time. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I haven't found any settings to be able yeah, to. Yeah, that,
0: that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: So, so I, I do enjoy that. And you know what? With 493 phase detect autofocus points, <laughs> you better you better be able to scroll continuously. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: for sure. Well, and and I find that because. It's doing phase detect and, and less of the uh, wait. What do you call them on the on the canons, right? Like there's more single points. Um, mm. It also does better grouping. Like I'm more likely to use zone systems on the Sony, yeah, because absolutely. They, they just work really well. They make so much more sense, and because the focus is getting good. So tell me, how does the face, especially the face detection autofocus, work now compared to the Canon?
1: I would say, if you're a portrait shooter it's hands down the better camera to get. If wow. you're using if you're using native class and uh, you are not taking a wild environmental portrait in the middle of Yosemite where your where your subject is you know a tenth the size of the frame, it's gonna pick up on the eye. Uh, it's it's astonishing how much better the eye and face autofocus is on the A7R3 compared to the A7R two, which was still fantastic. So the fact that you can move that eye autofocus in most of the frame as well. Uh, It really makes shooting, as a portrait shooter, I think it's a no-brainer to move over to Sony if you have the budget and if that's something that you can do. But I find myself going back to the 1DX Mark II and uh, still using Focus and Recompose because that very outer focus point on the 1DX Mark II is not a Mm cross-type focus point. So I still can't get out there with a ton of reliability. But the fact that it's uh, on-sensor... Uh, autofocus on the A7R three means that I can put that subject all the way out to the side of the frame. And uh, it's the exact same with Adapted Glass. So I, I think it's fantastic.
0: What about when you're doing video? Uh, so using the dual pixel autofocus on the Canon versus the...
1: Sure. Without a doubt, the Canon is better. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think the dual pixel autofocus is... Hands down the best video autofocus on the market. Now, don't get me wrong. The A7R 3 is really good. But the fact that I can choose to put a box or even have it do face detect, you're talking a, a sprinter running directly at you wide open at, at 1.4 or 1.8 and it's going to keep up. And uh, even with native class on the a7R III, it's probably not going to be the case 100% of the time. It's still fantastic, but that Canon dual-pixel autofocus is an absolute godsend if you're a video shooter.
0: It's impressive. I I was just trying them side-by-side at B&H today. I had the C200 there, uh, and then I went upstairs and tried the Sony and, and got to sort of experience them both in the same moment. And there is something... I haven't studied them enough to uh, know what the difference is that I'm seeing. Like, I can't quite describe it, but it feels a lot better, even in small environments, like not not even with the extreme situations you're talking about, but in subtle ways, like there's a smoothness to the Canon that I really appreciate. And I also think that their touchscreens seem to still be ahead of Sony's as well, just more responsive and more tactile.
1: Yeah, they absolutely are rack focusing. Uh, using autofocus with with Canon cameras is it's a no brainer. One feature that I actually recently discovered on my one D X Mark II, and I don't know why I hadn't hadn't noticed before. If you have it on uh, face detect in a dual pixel autofocus when you're recording video and there's several faces in the frame, you can actually click the joystick left or right and it'll rack focus to the next person's face. Oh. It's a really it's a really cool feature. I don't That's know funny. if it has it on the five D Mark IV. Cool.
0: No, I, I haven't. Tried it, so I, I should I should find out. I actually, shoot very little with my five D Mark IV because I just prefer the video out of the. That's why I have the Sony is is all for video, right. and also just a split. Like I want a camera that is for each. I've tried doing shoots where I'm using one body to shoot both stills and video, and it is not a good idea. <laughs> it, it causes sure. a lot of problems. So
1: um. absolutely.
0: And then the the thing that I found your video of was using adapted glass. So my situation, so so you can help me more than anybody else listening. Just let's worry about my <laughs> problems. I have a Sigma fifty millimeter one point four that I, I definitely want to be able to use. And then I have kind of everything else is um, pure Canon. So like I have all the zoom lenses, uh, a couple prime lenses. Um, but I do love that Sigma 50 a lot. Like, I much prefer it over Canon's 50. It is a preferred lens. So, I want that to work. I want my Canon zooms to work. Uh, how's this going to look on an A7R3?
1: So, on the A7R3, in my initial testing, and I don't do completely controlled testing, I like to take it out and just shoot it during the day, uh, mm-hmm. record my results, and, and give it as much variation as I can in those situations. Starting with the Sigma, Uh, Sigma was kind enough to send me out uh, on a loan, the 35 and 50 with their MC-11 adapter. And uh, I found that autofocus when shooting stills, even wide open, was fantastic with that MC-11 adapter. Face detect was really good, and eye detect was even really good. And you know that Sigma glass, it is stunning, even wide open. It's amazing. And at that 50, I sold my Canon 50mm uh, 1.2 because it was just so tough to use wide open. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was missing a ton of shots. It wasn't the sharpest lens wide open. But that, that Sigma 1.4, the 50mm wide open, especially now with that eye detect autofocus yeah. on the A7R 3 it's beautiful.
0: I find that that, the Canon, because I had the F- Canon 51.2 as well, and mm-hmm. I found, I mean, you'd have to stop it down to like 2.0 to match the Sigma or 2.8 even. I mean, it is not even close. The Sigma is so much sharper.
1: Yeah. And what's the, what's the point I say, if you're, if you're buying a lens that expensive and you're paying for that quality, I think you should be able to shoot with it wide open.
0: I would actually love to compare the Sigma to, uh, on the last episode, I was just talking about a comparison I did once between that Canon and which, how much is that Canon? Like 1500 at
1: least the 50 millimeter I I've seen it well I I don't know what it is uh new right now but I've seen it used under a thousand dollars wow so maybe it's because of that Sigma (laughs) (laughs) oh I think I think that is definitely some of it they uh they brought down the price and also the same for the uh 85 mil 1.2 the Sigma just destroys it
0: but so I was I had compared the Leica 50 millimeter 1.0 to the Canon and that blew my mind. Like I, you know, I don't know a Leica, but uh, just seeing them next to each other. So now I'd love to see it next to a Sigma. Like, what is a ten thousand dollar lens compared to that Sigma?
1: Sure, and I think at that price point, it's going to be negligible. Um, for any any listeners out there who didn't know, you can actually get autofocus on those Leica lenses. On Sony bodies now,
0: yeah. What's there's an adapter. What's who makes that? Is it?
1: It's called Tech Art. Uh, it's a it's a Chinese company as well, but they've they figured out how to uh, move around those Leica lenses and adapt them crazy to crazy technology. The E-mount, yeah, it's really cool. But uh, back to the uh, the autofocus tests. So in stills, I found that it was completely usable on the 35 and 50, and I haven't used any of the other Sigma glass. Uh, in video, it's a different story, though. Actually, I take that back. In video, it's not a different story, especially if you're using the MC-11 adapter. You're going to get video autofocus. It is not nearly as smooth as it is with native glass. It takes about a half to a full second longer to acquire focus. But uh, if your subject is relatively close to the center of the frame, especially if you're shooting wide open, so there's a really shallow depth of field, and you can separate your subject from whatever it is that you're shooting, uh, it was it was quite usable. I even handheld it. And uh, it, it seemed quite usable, and it didn't really miss. As long as I pointed uh, relatively straight towards what I wanted to be in focus, it uh, it did quite well. And uh, that is not the case when using the Metabones adapter with that same Sigma class.
0: All right, which uh, that's too bad for me here because I have the Metabones. But it, it does sound promising. I mean, it, what it seems like to me is that if you were to, let's say, transition fully from Canon to Sony, not that I am, but if, if I were to, that it would kind of be a stopgap. Like I could use it for a while, and at some point on my list of the items to purchase, I'll probably get, you know, maybe that Sony fifty-five uh, one point eight or something, or right. or you know when Sigma does something. Like I, I would find a solution because I it would work all right, but I'd want something better. That's what right. it sounds like.
1: And word on the street has it, uh, I don't know if you've been frequenting the rumor boards at all or... Not lately. ...that uh, Sigma may be releasing their first full-frame lenses for email Ooh. within the next two months.
0: That's... Well, then that would that would change a lot of things.
1: <laughs> yeah, these are, these are the rumors. So there was a uh, Chinese website that released an interview with somebody from Sigma. I believe it was yesterday or the day before. And uh, they were asking about... I forget what trade shows coming up in a couple months, and they everyone assumes that the 35 art will be the first uh, Sigma art series for for Sony's that are released because it, it was with their original art series. And uh, I guess the source said not only the 35 but other lenses as well. Wow, That's, so the uh, yeah the Sony Worlds it's kind of a buzz right now with that news.
0: I'm sure that it's less work for them to adapt the glass. That, like, I mean, you know. What, what are they doing? Just doing a different mount on the back, right? I mean, I don't know. How yeah, this
1: works, and and you never know. It, it, it. I'm sure it has a lot of the same technology as that MC11 adapter. Yeah, um, they just have to make that flange distance a little bit different. Essentially, put on an adapter. Fuse it together with their their current art series. My only hope with that is that uh, those lenses are a little bit smaller than the uh, Canon Nikon equivalents. Yeah, that
0: would be that would be a dream come true. I mean that that's another big motivation for me to switch uh, is just size. As I get more and more used to the Sony, it's really nice having like what I keep on it most of the time is the 28 millimeter twenty eight millimeter two and okay. it is so small. It's the size of the Canon. Nifty 50, right? Like the, the cheap 50 millimeter, basically the same size, um, mm-hmm. but much better performance and a higher end lens. Like I I feel like the small Sony glass can compete with some of the bigger Canon glass. So,
1: oh, it, it absolutely does. I have the Zeiss Battis 25mm f2, and uh, compared just to the 24 to 70 G Master. It is, it's about half the size, and it's significantly different taking off the G Master lens and putting on the baddest lenses. You don't even feel it, especially coming from the Canon world.
0: With the Canon zoom lenses, would you stick with them after, like if you switched, if you ditched your Canon bodies, would you keep using the Canon blast on the Sony body with adapters? Is, is it good enough?
1: Now, I think it depends what you're doing with it. If you're a portrait shooter and your subject is relatively still, um, they're not going to be moving towards you and away from you at a high rate of speed. I think it's perfectly usable and you can definitely count on it. I did have some issues with the Canon 70-200, to 200, the version 2 it, that's image stabilized and all that good stuff, the mm-hmm. big boy. When it, was, when it started to focus behind the subject, it had a lot harder time getting back to the subject as it did when it was... Uh, Close focused, you focus to the subject. So if you're in a just a non-fast paced environment, I think it's perfectly usable. I don't have the 24 to 70, and that's one of the biggest requests that I get on my YouTube channel right. is to uh, test out that lens. But I did recently have the chance yesterday, in fact, to test out the 24 to 70 Tamron, and if that lens is any indication, if the Canon 24 to 70 will focus well uh, I think it's going to be good news
0: Well and based on the even the A7R2 with Metabones the biggest issues were as the zoom range got further um. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, same here. Seventy two hundred performed the worst. Twenty four to seventy, much better. Sixteen thirty five, even better. Basically, as you go wider, it just had an easier time.
1: Absolutely. My all time favorite adapted lens on the A seven R three and A seven R two is that thirty five mil one point uh, four version two. It's it's just a stunning lens, and mm-hmm. everything everything works perfectly. And uh, all the rumors I've heard is that it works pretty much just as well as the Sony thirty five one point four. So. Oh, if you're still rocking that lens, right. I, I just wouldn't even get rid of it.
0: I should try that. I have the version one of that. So I, um, okay. I don't know. I'll see if it's the same. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is a very exciting times. And again, anybody listening to this, if you find this remotely interesting, then you have to go watch these videos. So go to the Brotographer on YouTube and track down what we're talking about, because the examples are what you need to see.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thanks again for this, and we look forward to your future videos testing out the camera more.
1: Thanks so much, Tyler. Should have a, uh, a full Tamron lineup coming up soon here in the uh, the next week tested on the A7R3 with the Metabones Mark IV adapters. So look forward to that, and uh, hopefully they work as well as I think they will. That's great. Thanks so much, Russ. Thanks, Tyler.